This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we have one of my favorite people in the Ruby community, Corey Haynes. Corey, do you want to say hi? Hi, how are you doing? We're doing all right. Now, you've been in the Ruby community for quite a long time. And uh, you were also on two episodes of Ruby Rogues, episode 186, talked about the four rules of simple design, and then episode 237, where we talked about Rails and JavaScript and functional programming. Nice. <laughs> Those are great episodes. Some of my favorite episodes. Yeah, there you go. Um, it, it's been interesting to get to know you over the years. I remember, uh, just on a personal note, uh, back in, what, 2008, at RubyConf 20, or 2008, um, you know, I'd heard about you, I'd watched some of your videos, and then I was walking into the lobby of the hotel to check in, and you were finishing up checking in, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Corey Haynes! <laughs> you know, and it's just, you know, it's a little micro-bubble community celebrity, right? You know, you, you walk over to Walmart, and I'm sure they just look at you like, oh, it's another guy. Oh, no, Walmart, they all know me. I'm big on big in the Walmart community. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so anyway, it's just, it's funny, and then you know, just to get to know you over the years and, um, you know, some of the other people in the Ruby community as well that are somewhat well known, everybody's just so friendly and down to earth and Hey, you know what? We love what we do. And I love helping people and getting to know people. And yeah, you, you are very much that way. And so, you know, I just, I have just appreciated getting to know you and, and, uh, experiencing that with you over the years. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, I've had the same with people sort of treating me that way. Mm-hmm. And sort of bringing me in and being very friendly with me. And as I've moved around from community to community, there's these people who treat you well and right. welcome you into the community. And that's such a great sort of, it's such a great feeling. It makes you feel like, hey, I'm, I think I can do this. Right. <laughs> you know, this isn't, you know, it's it's hard and it's easy and it's fun and it's challenging and people are tough and it's, tough when you go to conferences and it's tough trying to get in and talk to people. And there's all of these like, um, people who have been there before you. So they have a reputation right? and walking up to them and, you know, saying hello. And there's, there's key people in my life through my career who have always sort of opened the circle to me. Right. And let me come in and listen in and then, you know, give my ideas when they're with, when they're appropriate, we'll say, although I imagine I've given my ideas several times when it's not the most. <laughs> That's a very human thing to do. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, this show is mostly focused on capturing people's story and seeing where they came from and, you know, what's kind of shaped their experience in code. And I usually like to start at the very beginning. So how did you get into programming? Well, I was one of the really, really, really lucky people in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, My father, who 
had been like taxi driver and a bunch of other things, he shifted over into programming in the late seventies. And so he, um, sort of always had a computer in my house. Mm -hmm. So I was born in 73, um, probably had a computer in the house from when I was six or seven. He used to actually bring a computer home from work. Oh, wow. That had an acoustic coupler modem that we could dial into his work and play like, you know, ASCII horse racing games. (laughs) And so I always, I was just, I was one of those people that when you hear about right place, right time, Uh there was nothing special about my experience as much as just pure luck. And so I had a computer. I I made my way up through like the TRS-80, um, all the way up, you know, through the Tandy. I had a a pet. I had an Osborne, all of these old ones. Um, like my, some of my really early memories are turning on the computer and it booting up into WordStar, which was the word processor. And then I'd have to exit WordStar to get down to a prompt so that I could run a, run a game. Um, so all of these like really fun. And the way I ended up programming is I would, I played a lot of games and probably when I was about 10, 11 or 12, I, you know, got that. I learned that you could exit from the program. Mm -hmm. And so if you're playing a game and it's hard to get past a certain point, especially like text adventures, you could hit break and it would take you back down to generally a basic prompt and you could list the code around where you were at. Oh, nice. And you could figure out how to get past the point you were stuck at. And then you could just do like resume Mm -hmm. at a line number and you would resume and then you could continue on. And then over time, I learned that I could just skip all of that or I could change the code. And, (laughs) um, and so I slowly kind of got into it that way. And I, my parents put like my, I went to private schools up through eighth grade. And so my schools were generally across town, uh-huh. which meant I didn't have friends in my neighborhood. Okay. And so I spent a lot of time on the computer and that just sort of like all of those, you know, saying I didn't have friends in my neighborhood is, is, is weird to say it's lucky, but all of those things came together to have me sort of, shifted into programming. And then I got into BBSs, um, found a mentor on a BBS who um, taught me C and C++. Um, I remember, I think it was like my 15th birth or my 15th, when I was 15, all I wanted for Christmas was Turbo C++ 1.0 because they had just, (laughs) it was just come out. Borland had just released it. It was the first IDE that had multiple windows. So it was MDI. Uh And you could like, you had an output screen. You didn't have to go to the prompt to run. You could like, it was this wonderful thing. And so I learned C, I learned C++. I had, you know, the Turbo C++ Bible, which fell apart. I used it so much. And like, I learned a lot from the, the, the Borland manuals. And, um, and then I had a friend who ran a BBS in Seattle that was also learning it. So we like, so we learned you know, OO by building Atari combat. So you had different tanks and you had different, (laughs) you know, turrets, you had rotating turrets and non-rotating turrets and bullets that bounced. And so it was all subclassing and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the standard, um, early, this is how 
OO works kind of stuff. Um, and then I didn't like, it was just a game for me. It was just, it was just something that I enjoyed doing creating. And I wasn't planning on becoming a programmer. I was actually, uh, I wanted to be a theoretical cosmologist. <laughs> it's like study black holes and, nice. and all of that. And then I got into college and realized that physics, even though you wanted to be a theoretical cosmologist, you still had to go through like experimental physics. Right. And I am not that good at experimental physics gotcha. and didn't enjoy it. And then I took uh, trigonometry, which was which had all of the beauty of like just theory uh -huh. with none of the real world dirtiness. And so like I, I switched over and became a math major and got a degree in math. And then I was not like I was, was actually teaching English in Hungary for four years after university. And oh, nice. That sounds like fun. It was a lot of fun and I loved Hungary and I learned Hungarian and I really was settling down there, but I was a horrible, horrible English teacher. Uh -huh. And so I decided to quit and shift over and I ended up through a, a series of things, um, getting a job as a web developer at a company there and uh, learned HTML. This was in 96. Uh -huh. So it was actually right at the end of like Microsoft IIS had just come, was just coming out. Um, ASP wasn't around yet. Mm -hmm. ASP came out, I think the uh, beginning of 20 or 2000 or 1996. And so I, um, I, I dove into that and I was, I was very, I was very much in the Microsoft world and the Microsoft space and then just sort of knit up in web and did visual basic for a long time. Um, loved visual basic. Um, it was just did some, did some really, really neat things in visual basic. Um, and then moved to C sharp when it came out in 2001. Um, and then I, got involved in the agile community in the XP community in 2004. So I, um, I was working at a company at progressive insurance and they were bringing, they were sort of doing, it was the, the heyday of agile transformations right. and they brought ThoughtWorks in and object mentor. And so they, they had like two okay. pilot teams and I was on the team that had object mentor come in. Uh -huh. And so I learned, I spent a week or two pairing with Bob Koss who is a underappreciated gem of programming teaching and just like programming wisdom. Um, not people don't know about him, but Bob Koss was, this is just really great. And so he paired, paired with him. Um, I think Michael Feathers stopped by because he was at Object Mentor at the time. Um, Lowell Lindstrom was there. Um, Bob Martin was there. And so I got to learn from these people and then, Started going to the Agile conferences, met David Chalimsky, met Micah Martin, um, and I think it was the around 2005, 2006, you started seeing um, a shift at the Agile conference from PCs to Macs and from Java and sort of .NET to Ruby. Right. Before and, you dive into Ruby, okay, I want to I yeah. want to pick apart some of the other okay. parts of your story. <laughs> okay. Um, so if if we go back, you mentioned that you found a mentor on the BBSs. Yeah. Um, and 
I, I'm curious, you know, how, how old were you then? You, you mentioned you were like 15. Hmm. Um, when I, that was probably, I was probably about 13 or 14 uh-huh. at the time. So that's one thing that I'm, I'm interested in as well is, you hmm. know, how do you become a mentor to and be a good mentor for somebody, especially somebody at, at that age? The things I remember was that there was never a question of, could I do this? Uh-huh. There was never like a mystery around it or is this hard or easy or anything. I just remember it just being a thing. And this was like, this was 90, it was probably 89, 88, 87. Uh-huh. And there was no, there was no, at least I, I don't remember there being a mystery around it or being right. anything there. There was not as big of a community. This was pre web. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't like, places to go to find information. And it was all just BBSs for me, right. Um, dialing into those. And I just remember it being, this is just a thing. Mm-hmm. And I would ask questions. He taught me how to uh, program my HP calculator. Cause it was, um, it was all RPN. So it was reverse Polish notation. And the programming was, it was an, I think it was like an HP 99 uh-huh. or something. It was like one of those little like brick, rectangular ones and um, taught me how to program that and just sort of answered questions, gave, you know, told me I should read the, you know, K&R, the Carnegie and Ritchie C programming guide, (laughs) just kind of gave me and led me along. And when I had questions, answered them. And there was no, it wasn't a big thing. Right. Um, I remember it was just, yeah, this is something you can do. Gotcha. And then, and then moving up through some of these other languages and things, one other thing that I really enjoy calling out on a lot of these shows is the fact that we probably have about 25% of the people that I've interviewed across all of the different stories uh, that, that I've had people tell that actually have a CS degree. Mm-hmm. And everybody else has a little bit different background. I mean, you, you did some programming earlier in life, but then, you know, it's, I went and taught English in Hungary, and then, you know, I, I came back and, and made this journey back into programming. Uh, I wonder a little bit, you know, with that transition, was it was it hard to break back into programming or did you just kind of find a place that you fit and settled in? I just found a place that I fit and settled in. Like I didn't, there wasn't ever a question of should you have a degree? Because when I started, like my first professional programming job was in 96 and I had just just kind of, you know, I, I actually think I got the job because I knew the person who was starting the web studio right. and I had worked for him in a sales role and I had done some Excel programming because um, Excel was my dream programming. Like I loved programming Excel. Yeah. And so um, I learned, I had done some programming with Excel macros back in 93, 92, and then had uh, got a contract when I was in Hungary for this language school to build them a language school management system Uh in Excel. And I was like, yeah, I've done some Excel. I've done some Excel programming and macros and fine. And this was, and then I got a copy of Excel five and macros were not that much of a thing anymore. It was all VBA. Uh And this was in 90, Four. This had to be 94. So it was again, pre-web. I'm in Hungary. Right. And I learned VBA 
all the only reference I had were the Hungarian help files for Excel. And so you can imagine this program I built, <laughs> but it was like, you know, it was spreadsheets and, um, and I had, I had actually built a somewhat not in hindsight. Like I look back on it and it's like, wow, I actually built a small relational database in Excel right. that had like cascading deletes and updates and oh, really? racial integrity and stuff because I had like, you need database, like you need uh -huh. to store data and it only made sense to do some of these things. And, um, I remember talking to somebody about it and they asked me why I didn't use access. Uh -huh. And I swear my answer was I wanted to use a Microsoft product. Like I had no, and I, I didn't even really know what access was. Right. Like I didn't know what a database was. Like I, I just, you built something to store data. And I had done that as a, uh, Oh, here's a, here's an interesting around like a sort of mentoring kind of thing is when I was probably 15 or 16, I had built a little, a little program that allowed me to leave notes for certain days. Mm -hmm. And then I had kept it in my auto exec file. So right. when I picked it up, um, it would look to see if there was a note for the day. And if there was, it would display it. And I had built a small little flat file store. I ended up figuring out how to build an index file because I needed to quickly look up dates. Uh -huh. And so I had, I had developed a, an idea of an index file. And then I went and talked to somebody who was working at Microsoft at the time. And I was struggling with um, deletion. How do you delete from this? Because it's just, everything's all over the place. And he looked, I remember sitting, he, this was, you know, 89, 90 or something. I remember sitting, eating my free ice cream at Microsoft because I had taken the bus for two hours to go to Microsoft to see this friend of a family that was showing me around. And there were like three buildings or four buildings or something. And he looks across at me and he goes, why don't you mark it as deleted? And then periodically flush the deletions. <laughs> and my mind was blown because it was, I remember it being the first time that it occurred to me that somebody else had solved a problem that I had. Right. And like this, I'm, I don't have to develop everything from scratch. Like there's, there's people out there who have already thought about these things and I can find them and I can talk to them and I can, I can learn from them. Um, so that's a roundabout <laughs> way of um, answering the question, which is I didn't really have um, uh, the CS degree wasn't a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> yeah, I just know that some people make a big deal out of it. And, you know, there are so many ways in. Yeah. And, you know, if you if you get a CS degree, that's fine. Yeah. It doesn't make you a programmer. Um, it gives you some theoretical knowledge. Um, a lot of times, often I'll say that I think CS degrees are wasted on the young because <laughs> there's so much great that. stuff in there. Yeah. And like, I would love to go back and get a CS degree because there's, I've, I have a lot of experience. And so going and learning some of these basic foundational things, I have places where I can think back and go, oh yeah, that's what this was. Yep. Um, and so if you get a CS degree, I mean, I tell people some of the best developers I know were, you know, jazz musicians and history majors and English majors and 
theater directors, all of these people who uh, came into programming and a lot of them fell in love with it because it was a creative process. Yep. And it's making things, which is, which is so much of what a lot of us love about it is you kind of just get an idea and you can make it. Yep. Like I've, I've taken painting and I'm learning piano and I'm, I like all of these things. I've never been able really to draw well because I haven't put the practice and the time in to, to learn how to do it, but I've put the time in to learn how to program. And so I can, it's sort of, it's sort of a canvas right. of, of, of just creation. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, it's, it's pretty funny too. I mean, you talk about, you know, the CS degree and whether or not you need one. Um, I remember when I worked at BYU, it was, I was in, uh, the IT department. I was actually a systems administrator, not a programmer, mm -hmm. but, um, the team that did most of the development on the web assets for the university had law degrees and yeah. come back <laughs> around to programming. You know, they, they didn't like law. They somehow wound up back in programming and it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's not a lot that I've found that you learn in a CS program that is useful in, the, in like the first few years of your yeah. development. And a lot of the times, like I build web apps, mm -hmm. primarily my, even when, before I was building web apps and when I was building desktop apps, is I think that if you took my career and you dropped and randomly chose a year, I was probably building ways to take data and put it into a database. Yeah. And I have like, I built an automation testing tool and an automation framework that, you know, was really great and was extensible and all of this stuff. And I built a soft, you know, managing a software distribution and desktop management system. And I, I built things that were, that took a little bit more theoretical knowledge, mm -hmm. but literally right now at my job, I build little widgets that newsrooms put on their websites to ask their audiences questions. Nice. And it puts it into a database and then I build a tool that lets them manage that data. And so the, the computer science type of things, like I do think about caching and I do think about um, oh, right. a lot of that stuff, but not from having learned about it in a degree. The, the thing that I think about more than anything is how do I make it so that my users can use this better? Like there's a bunch of data. How can I show it to them effectively? And how can I, how can I build a tool that is usable? Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's always exceptions. Like there are people who work on things that are, you absolutely need right. computer science background yeah, and, no, and a lot of that theoretical stuff. But most people are just like, you're building a website. Don't do all of that stuff. It's, it's, it's crud. Mm -hmm. And over time, you'll learn the things that you need to learn. Um, and chances are, especially if you're a beginner, there's going to, hopefully there's somebody at your work on your team who has enough experience who has thought about those things. Yep. Um, and you can learn from them and, you know, go study all of that stuff. Cause it's really interesting and it's really cool. And everything, you know, contributes to being a better developer. Mm -hmm. Um, but that everything, you know, is not just everything about computers that you know. Right. Absolutely. 
All right, I'm going to push us back on track <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> for the, <laughs> the interview. I mean, it's it's interesting to go on these tangents, and that's part of the reason why I like doing these shows. But um, yeah, I, I do want to get back on track yes. here. <laughs> how, how how did you wind up doing Ruby? It sounded like you were just about to go there when uh, yeah. So the Agile, I was doing. Um, all, I was in the Microsoft world doing C sharp. Um, I was at. I started going to the Agile conferences, and in 2004 at the XP Universe conference, I met um, David Chlimsky. Who, I'll, I'll, who is one of those people who sort of welcomed me into the community. And, and I like to say that almost all of the major things that have happened in my programming career since probably 2004, David's been sort of a, has, has had an influence in it. Oh, interesting. A major part of it. And so he is one of the nicest and great programmers that I've, that I know. And he would always be working on something. And after about 2005, it was always RSpec. Uh-huh. So he had taken over and maintained RSpec and, and built a lot of the things around it. And so whenever I would see him and I would see him at conference once or twice a year, he'd always be, have his computer open and he'd be coding. And it always felt like I would come up and you know, say hi, meekly, like it's David Jelimski. And he would say, hey, sit down and we pair. And so I, a lot of the first Ruby that I was introduced to and really did was pairing with David on RSpec. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of those ideas, like 2005, I remember um, Dave Estelle's had given a talk at the Agile conference about um BDD, and it was sort of the early days of Dan um, North bringing it up and people starting to talk about changing a little bit of the language around it. And it was the early days before BDD had sort of matured into the the sort of methodology that it is today. Right. It was real. A lot of us talking about what it means to, um, to use different language around testing. And so David had shifted over to Ruby. I got to program with him. Um, and then in 2007, I decided that I wanted to shift over to uh, doing Rails. Mm. And I had, you know, been in the world, been in the Microsoft world for a long time, and probably 10, 11 years at the time. And I was like, oh, I really am enjoying this. C Sharp is, is a great language, and the .NET ecosystem is was really coming to its own, but I... I really enjoyed Ruby and enjoyed Rails. And so I spent 2007 learning it. Um, interestingly, the first place that I hosted and actually had a Rails app exposed to the internet was on this online editor that you had to like make a tarball out of your code and upload it. <laughs> and then it was an online Rails editor. and But it also allowed you to like run it. Uh huh. And it was this like weird, like early, early company called Heroku. I was going to say that's that's what Heroku <laughs> looked like when it started. Exactly. And so <laughs> I remember tarring up my files and shoving them up there, and there was no way to like like you edit them. And I remember talking to them, like, how do I get it back? And and all of this stuff. And so it was yeah, it was really fun. And so all of my early stuff was hosted on you know, early, early days Heroku. And then 2008, 
I got an opportunity to join a startup. I was living in Cleveland at the time. So I got an opportunity to join a startup that was doing Rails or they were rebuilding their system in Rails. Mm -hmm. They had a team of, let me see, somebody who had been a PHP developer, somebody who had been a, I had been a .NET C Sharp developer. I think we had two .NET developers, a PHP developer, a who was effectively kind of a junior developer at the time, mostly .NET. And like none of us, I knew Rails the most and I had never really had a production application in Rails. (laughs) Um, And so we made a mess of the code base and, and, you know, spent the summer really just um, pushing around. And that was kind of the, I, that, that was my shift into Ruby and Rails. And I've never really looked back. I love Ruby. Like to this day, that was 10 years ago was my first Ruby job. And it's my relationship with Ruby and with Rails especially has changed over the years. Um, but it's still like Rails is still my go-to backend for web because it is most of what I build is a variation of a cred app and rails is just a workhorse. Like it gets, it gets it done and you don't like, I don't agree with all of the design inside of rails and the choices. Um, but they're solid Mm -hmm. and they, they tend to be, tend to be consistent. And so if you just kind of, when I say that my relationship has changed with it over the years is I've gotten less interested in my server side being interesting. Right. And so I tend to just roll rails out of the box and just use for the most part rails way ish coding and designs mm-hmm. and just then cause it's, it's really, mo- it's mostly just an API right. for me works great. Um, super when you know how to use it, and you sit on the rails, I guess you could say it <laughs> is so fast and so good and it's solid. It's yeah. Like, yeah. I totally, I totally get where you're coming from for me. I mean, yeah, it's just, I want to get work done and yeah, it just, it removes a lot of the things that come up in my path in other paradigms. Yeah. And so it's, you know, what I can crank this out and you know, some people get concerned over performance and things like that, but you know, those are problems you can solve later when you're at scale. Yeah. I mean, I, I run most of my stuff is read based. Uh-huh. So most of the, most of the traffic that I get is read. Right. And we serve, I don't know at our, there was a point where we were serving like 12 or 13 million page views a month mm-hmm. on a single Heroku dyno. Oh, wow. Because it was all read. So, uh, just learn how to cache, learn how to use a cache effectively in those cases. Now, not everybody can be a read heavy application, but learning like a lot are. And I think that that knowing what your constraints are and what the sort of type of application you have um, can let you do it. And don't worry so much. Like I wish that I had the problem where my company had scaled to the point where I was really running into these problems because it's, if, if I have a decent business, then I have money to manage uh-huh. that, to, to bring yeah. people on and, and, um, and get over that hump. Makes sense. So, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've been doing Ruby for quite a while. Um, you've spoken at a lot of conferences, you've written some open source software. 
what are the things to you that are your highlights of your uh, Ruby career? I think that the, I mean, the highlight of like the past 10 years that's a lot associated with sort of the Ruby stuff has been kind of the community I built up around code retreats. Uh-huh. Um, the, from a pure programming perspective, it's been less of like things I've done in programming and more the, uh, I'm really proud of different sort of communities of learning that I've worked with. And, um, it, it, I'm really proud of the fact that a lot of the, the places that teach Ruby, I know the people I've, I have a relationship with the people who run them and, and a lot of the teachers. And so I can, I get to go talk to them and work with them and pair with them. And, um, just, I, I, that, that's really, I think mostly what I'm proud of is, is more of communities that I've built around it and supported people building communities around it. Um, although I will say that I have two gems that I'm really proud of because they're completely, you should not use them. <laughs> and, and they're, they like say in the readme, don't use this, but I actually packaged them up in gems and set the version. They'll be like 6.2. Uh-huh. So that it looks like there's like <laughs> I just had pushed them up to Ruby Gems. Nobody uses them. I mean, there's like an overloaded methods one. There's one that does uh, um, more pattern matching based dispatch for uh, like, I mean, a, just a, a thing you shouldn't really do, but right. kind of fun. Those are um, those are fun, and and I'm I'm proud of the fact that a lot of the open source tools out there. I've paired with the people who built them and my, like my hands have been in there, but not like they're not mine or they're not like my name's not associated with them. I like the fact that I've, I've worked on a lot of these Uh things um, and got the opportunity. You know, I've met enough people and had enough people like me that they let me work with them and pair with them and learn from them. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, too. I mean, I've talked to a number of people that have been involved in different ways. And it seems like some people really focus on and get a lot out of open source or other things. But uh, I identify more along the lines of what you're talking about as well, where it's the community. It's going to the conferences and having conversations with people. And, you know, yes, I get to rub shoulders with people who are out there making a difference, you know, writing the open source code like you talked about. But also just the, the person that comes up to me and says, I heard a talk you gave or a podcast episode you did, and it changed the way that I do life, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. it's, it's all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and it's the community and the people that really, in my opinion, um, make programming worth doing as much as the challenges in the technology and anything else. So, yeah. And, and like, we all make mistakes and we all say things that we shouldn't have, or we, you know, get a little hot under the collar and, and I'm the king, you know, cause a ruckus. <laughs> and I record a lot of it. Yes. And you record <laughs> a lot of it. Mine tend to be one on or in, in a group. But the nice thing is too, is that, um, a lot of the people around that are in the community are like, they'll do something and then they'll just apologize yeah. and like not fake apologies, but just like, yeah, I didn't like, there've been a couple times where I, whether on purpose or not, or it doesn't matter said something that wasn't 
didn't fit with the way I would want to be known. Uh-huh. And like the, there's a, there's, there can be a culture of just like, wow, that was really bad. I'm really sorry. Yeah. And just a, a flat out kind of thing. And I, I, I like that. That's, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not the most common thing, but it's not super uncommon. And there's a lot of people who that sort of their mode is it's okay to make mistakes, but, but, you know, own up to your mistakes and own up to those yeah. sorts of things. Um, and so it's just, it's the people I've met have been so, so wonderful. I've been very, very lucky around, around that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, and it's again, you know, and especially, you know, in the political climate in the U S and some of these other places, if you don't agree, I mean, they just go after you hardcore hundred percent. They just want to destroy you. And it's, it's nice to be in a community where it's, Hey, we're all learning together and we're all going to forgive each other for, you know, making mistakes and saying dumb things. And, you know, we're, we're going to do better. And, you know, we're all on the same team. A lot of this stuff. Yeah. Most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Most, of the, most time. of the time. That's true. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't understand how people can use Vim, but that's another, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, but, but yeah. Well, I always say there's two one true editors. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so what are you working on now? Um, well, I'm, I've been the past three years been really focused on, um, started this company Harkin, mm-hmm. which are, which is sort of a, a good segue. We work with newsrooms around the world and provide them consulting and best practices and advice on how to do, um, better audience focused journalism and increasing trust and transparency and allowing the sort of bringing the audience into the editorial room and letting them all the way from what should be covered to how to cover it, to uh, transparency around the actual reporting process. And so my my uh, co-founder, Jennifer, she was Jennifer Brandell. She's the brains and the visionary around the journalism part of it. But this mission of um, really working um, to help the media industry reestablish it's it's relationship with the audience and we've been we've been working on this for she's been working on ideas for a a lot for longer than that but we've been working together for the last three years and building a a, you know a company around it so we work with um, i'm really proud of the work i've done over the last three years with that around journalism and um, it feels like i've done something i've helped helped do something worthwhile with um with the skills and yeah i mean that's a it's the big thing. I'm, you know, there's little things like I'm, I'm eventually I'm going to finish this book that I've been working on. <laughs> um, but, uh, that's really been sort of all consuming over the last three, three years. And, um, you know, trying to, trying to balance that with sitting around with my cat and my girlfriend. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so if people want to find out more about Harkin, either because they're in the media industry or, you know, maybe there's somebody like me and they're thinking, gee, you know, I, I wonder how this would apply to podcasts or something like mm-hmm. that or YouTube. Um, how do they find out about that? So you can go to weareharkin.com. Um, and if you, yeah, if you know people, if you're in, um, a newsroom or it's sort of like if you're a content creator mm-hmm. or a community of interest, then there are tools and ideas that we have that can, and can help a lot. Um, 
Yeah, so wearehearken.com. If you Google Harkin and journalism, we're pretty well known and, and up on there. So it's um, it's pretty good. We do have some podcasts that use us, um, some live shows. We do we work with digital and radio and television and newspapers and a lot of those um, just across the board. We the 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 ideas are really about cre- about how best to create content for an audience, but we focus very much on on journalism and media um, as our as our primary demographic. Very cool. So, yeah, if you are in a newsroom or something like that, please reach out because we sure could use more customers. <laughs> Said every business ever, right? Exactly, exactly. That that's great. And then if people want to find your talks or blog posts or Twitter or GitHub or whatever, where's all that stuff? Um, I'm Corey Haynes everywhere. So on Twitter, I'm at Corey Haynes. If you want um, pictures of animals and retweets of <laughs> political stuff, then um, I don't say a lot of political stuff, but I retweet a lot of political stuff. And I also uh, tweet a lot of animal stuff. So it's sort of this this range of, of anger and cute animals. I went through a, a period a little while ago where I would unfollow people who were negative and replace them with a stream, like a Twitter feed of cute animals. And so I have this really interesting um, uh, Twitter stream that goes goes through my thing. Um, so yeah, Corey Haynes, you can, I've written a little bit. I don't write a lot, CoreyHaynes.com and like, if you Google Corey Haynes, you'll pretty much find me. Um, not the child actor Corey Haynes from the 1980s. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, the last part of the show is picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. I do. So there's two. One is Elm from a tech perspective. We've been doing Elm at Harkin for the last uh, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Elm in production. Like it's, it is the way I describe Elm is, um, it is optimized for getting DOM nodes onto a web page, and it's Haskell without the academia. And so it's like it's about being incredibly productive, building a web uh, website and. Love it. 
the, one of the philosophies is no runtime errors, and we've not had any runtime errors in a year and a half. It's just, it's this nice. amazing, amazing language and architecture and framework and everything together. Um, we, uh, yeah, so we, we use it ex exclusively in our, in our system now. Um, so go check that out. The other one is the Beyond Burger. You ever heard of this? No. It is a plant-based burger, but it's not a veggie burger. Like, it's not like take some black beans and things and mush them together. It's <laughs> primarily pea-based, not PEA-based. Uh -huh. um, and so they basically just rip apart the proteins and, like, put them together and add a little beet for redness. Uh -huh. And it tastes like a burger. It's amazing. Um, it tastes like a good quality burger that you're going to get at a place. Um, and it's, I've, I love them. They, they, I, I don't remember the last time I had an actual beef burger. Maybe now that's not to say that I don't, I wouldn't, uh, support going and getting like super high quality, like a super high quality beef burger is amazing. Mm -hmm. And you know, all of that, but for an everyday, like good, good, uh, burger beyond burger, go try, try it out. Um, there's more and more, we have a, a chain here in Chicago that has them called Epic burger. Uh, whole foods has them a bunch of different places have them, but it's, it's a really great, it tastes, it's got, the thing about veggie burgers, they don't have the texture. Yeah. This has the texture of a burger. It's it's really good. So I rave about them to everybody these days. So I'll rave them, rave about it on this as well. There we go. Sounds good. Yeah. Those are the two my two picks. Nice. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and pick food stuff as well because Yeah. Um, so for Christmas my wife got me a smoker. Mmm. And uh so I am looking forward. I have two racks of ribs in the fridge. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to digging in on that. Make some, make some bacon. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So it's it's been fun to just look at what recipes are out there for that. Um, so yeah. Um, I've I've also been doing the keto diet. What's that? Uh, ketogenic. It's low carb, like ultra uh, low carb. Okay. Okay. Um, and I've been feeling a ton better with that, but I've. I've been able to find like uh, ketogenic rubs that don't have sugar and stuff in them. Oh, okay. Um, and so, yeah, just a little bit of Google magic will help you find a lot of that stuff. Um, I also found this really great recipe for essentially um, it's uh, bacon. Um, <laughs> it's bacon wrapped sausage. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. You had me at bacon and then it just went higher with the yeah. bacon wrapped sausage. <laughs> yeah. So you weave the bacon together, you uh, spread mm. the, Italian sausage inside it. You put some spices in it. You roll it up. Uh, you uh, put barbecue sauce on the outside and stick it in the smoker for a few hours. That sounds good. You know, I've, I've, I've never actually done anything where you weave bacon, but I always see the recipes and stuff. One day I just want to weave some bacon just to say that I've weaved bacon. Oh, yeah. Bacon weaves will change your <laughs> life, I think. <sighs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Corey. It's always fun to talk and uh, just kind of catch up on what's going on. Yeah. There's always a ton of interesting stuff going on. And, and it seems like, especially when I talk to you, there's always something interesting that you're working on. So. Oh, well, I appreciate it. I 
I love love chatting about programming. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, folks, and uh, we'll have another Ruby story for you next week. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. 